From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do this every week coming to you via Zoom since the onset of the pandemic in March 2020. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew. Audie Weiner is here out on the main line. Shane Jensen is here right there in Center City. And Eric Bradlow from Points West. He managed to work us into his travel schedule, which we very much appreciate. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Good. Yeah, excellent. It's Tuesday afternoon. We're recording as we usually do on Tuesday afternoon. The show will go up on Wednesday morning. Lots of sports to talk about. Lots of things to check in about. want to start with COVID-19, as we have been doing. What news, fellas, what news, if any, in the world of COVID-19 has caught your eye in the past week? So, and my, I haven't, much, not much has caught my eye, which is one of the first times in two and a half years. Um, that's great news, I think. The big news, of course, is Philadelphia backtracked on its mask mandate almost as quickly as it introduced it. Um, which is, of course, had a, a somewhat of a of an important impact on my life. I don't have to walk into my building with one, so that's one of the big things I've noticed. How about you guys? <laughs> yeah, I mean that was basically. It's like, and I love their like little press release. They, oh, they reinterpreted the data, you know, <laughs> to make the decision they were basically told to make anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it was interesting. I mean, I, I, you know, the one thing that was kind of notable about that is that you know they they kind of explicitly mentioned in their little like press release that they you know, kind of moved away from these automatic sort of like, you know, like they had this kind of system where they would automatically kind of trigger a mass mandate based on kind of like a certain percent increase in, in cases. And I think they've kind of realized that having something like that kind of being an automatic trigger is probably not a great idea. Well, you, know, you mean it's, like it's, when it goes from 10 to 15 cases, Shane, that's a 50% increase and therefore yeah. automatic trigger. And there was no, yeah. like, um, yeah, no, I, there was no, no amount. There was no sample number. It was just a certain percentage. Forget no, what the yes. base is. Okay. So I, the problem isn't the automatic nature of that. Yeah. was the criterion. Well, itself. no, I mean, it, 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 I mean, they, they picked a specifically stupid trigger, like specific automatic trigger yeah. based on cases and based on percent increase that was particularly not well said but i think this automatic thing because again an automatic career trigger based on any one criteria doesn't allow you to make a multifaceted decision maybe it makes it a little bit more transparent and less arbitrary seeming but you kind of i feel like want to integrate a whole bunch of data to or, or like measures together to make these kind of big policy decisions so um, I, I, the other thing that was really big for me is uh, I saw a wonderful serology uh, um, report. For those of you who don't remember, serology is what we use to determine whether or not you've been uh, exposed actually uh, through the exposed to the virus itself. Um, it checks for I guess it also can check for um, vaccine induced uh, antibodies, but it can also re- uh, detect for natural immunity. And a wonderful chart um, just came out that shows the percentage of Americans that have been exposed to um the virus itself before oh, you tell us that what, number, what what really yeah yeah, yeah. quickly as a clarifying question i always thought the serology couldn't tell the difference between vaccine induced antibodies and those from the disease you're saying it can now oh right? sure it can yeah yeah okay sure. it all depends on on which version of the serology test you look for got it but they have a visualization that somehow is supposed to represent like the population of america 
Even no, well, that's have, just a, no. Even obviously, we have no random yeah, sample. Yeah, tell right, us right. How obviously that's you know. So I, I I didn't have a chance to dig into that, and so I have to assume that it's crap to start with. I love this. <laughs> you know, we don't have a random sample of these things. Uh, we don't we don't have other other countries do. Um, um, I actually have some results from England's ongoing cohort sample that they do every week. Um, with about 40,000, uh, I don't know how they selected them, but they've been tracking the same, the same group for a long time. Um, but this result obviously is suspicious, but, but it does seem to benchmark the way you would like it to see. So the overall result was in the mid 60%. Um, that's the fraction of Americans that have been exposed. What was cool about it is that over, over, well over 75, approaching 80 of, of kids have been exposed or have have positive um, natural um, exposure natural exposure they have, they have antibodies yeah. to the nat- to the natural virus right and o- and and over 65 uh, it was uh, it was already it was down to about 20 to 25% and kind of going linearly interpolating uh, interpolating linearly between you know 15 years old to 65 from that high of 75 down to about 20 25 and Adi, so just just kind of makes sense does it mean to be just to clarify yeah Eric, you're cutting out for you're cutting out a little bit. Let me just jump in for with the clarifying question. Um, I thought this was exposure of any kind. I must have missed the beginning of the question. This is only exposure to the, in the naturally occurring, not the yes. vaccine. Yeah. That's why these numbers are relatively low. They're backwards because almost every 65 year old has been vaccinated. Right, um, but even but, right. So so total total vet like total immunity. Either that presumably this the the they have the the values for kind of the the total immunity. Kind of either naturally or or, well, or Shane, with, Shane yeah. with one qualification, you're using the word immunity like we did two years ago. We've learned to say something Ex- like you know exposure because the immunity is so declining over time, right? Is that just the, sure. Just to be clear, so again, presence of antibodies that's testing for does suggest still immunity, or like some that that's some that's degree. how we that's how we have immunity is we have antibodies for the virus. Yeah. 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 Hold on. So yeah, let me, now let me understand that. So oh, is it? So there's if, there's antibodies generated in, because of the vaccine, and there's antibodies generated because of actual infection. Okay, but we still have antibodies whenever the effectiveness of the vaccine is declining. Right? Absolutely, or, absolutely. Yeah. So there's deg- there's degrees of antibodies. There's, there's right. they don't disappear from your from your bloodstream. At least at least to my knowledge, um, okay. they don't. You can tell whether you've had the infection even long after you've uh, stopped generator response that's strong enough to keep back another infection. Okay. So what caught my eye was, uh, since I flew out here to Los Angeles, was phenomenon in the airport. And I did the same, actually. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about the role, and Adi talked about this for a long time, about the role of ventilation, you know, in, some, in indoor spaces. And also, of course, crowds. And so I actually wore a mask while I was not on the plane, but actually in the airport, poor ventilation, very congested crowds. Um, and actually, I think I noticed a larger fraction of people wearing a mask on the plane. And actually, there is some data to suggest that's not an irrational thing to do from a purely exposure point of view. So I thought that was just interesting. In other words, people had either encoded somehow that crowds are bad, that ventilation is good, and that the physical airport where you're in all clustering by a gate is a bad thing. And so I saw many people, as they were getting on the plane, pull their masks down that they had on in the boarding area. 
That's interesting. I mean, it definitely does. There is a trade-off, right, between kind of, I mean, the terminal, obviously, you're going to be exposed to a much greater number of people, any one of which could have COVID and therefore be kind of a, 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 you know, an exposure point for you. But you're exposed to any one of those people for presumably less time, you're sharing less circulated air with them, etc. So there's got to be kind of a a trade-off there between kind of length of exposure to any one per like, you know, probably, you know, given, given that the, a particular person next to you has COVID, the chance of you kind of having enough exposure to get it from is probably higher on the plane itself. But in a terminal, you're much more likely to kind of be sitting next to somebody who has COVID, you know, just because right. you're, you're kind of, you know, you're, you're meeting a lot more people or being kind of coming across a lot more people. The other thing I, is, you know, we always- let me jump in as well with yeah. the comment. I, I'm, I'm, int- I'm intrigued by this idea that ventilation might be that bad in airports. I understand ventilation in airplanes is quite good for by, by design, but an airport, I wouldn't have thought that's like, not like a restaurant and that an airport is so big and the ceilings are so high. I would have thought that's a relatively good, almost outside like situation, but I realize there's no wind. Wind is probably really helpful for the outside. So it's not like a, you know, an airport of all in enclosed spaces, I would have thought ventilation would have been relatively. Yeah, decent. no, I, I mean, I have that same intuition. I'll just kind of point out, and this is the same kind of discussion I think we were having really kind of early on in the pandemic when we were talking about outdoor stadiums and, oh, they should be safe because it's outdoors and there's even wind and stuff like that. But there's a lot of choke points you know, in these like these large facilities, like bathrooms or obviously at the gates themselves in the case of airports or at at security that kind of, I think, congregate people in a much more Mm -hmm. kind of in a much more like even more crowd. You know, there's there's times when you're at the airport where you're in a much more crowded situation than you are in a restaurant. There's a lot of times at the airport you're not. But I think it's those choke points that probably are where you might get the most exposure. Mm-hmm. Also, a discussion with one of the flight attendants also brought me back to something we've talked about on the show as well, which is she was choosing, she didn't have to, she was choosing to wear a mask. And, you know, just like in marketing, we talk all the time about never buyers. And we talk about it in terms of the vaccine. There's just some percentage of the people that are never getting the vaccine no matter what. There are some percentage of people that aren't going to buy a certain product or service no matter what. And I think now we're going to see the reverse. I think there's going to be a fraction going to to wear masks in indoor public-like settings. Mm-hmm. And the, the this flight attendant told me she was doing it because she hasn't had a cold or any type of flu in two and a half years. Exactly. It has less to do with the COVID. With COVID. Mm-hmm. She yeah. just says, I've never been healthier. And so, <laughs> right. you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so I think you may, and I told you a story of my, one of my childhood friends who was a bond trader. He takes the subway to work every day. He said he's going to, for the rest of his life in New York City in the subway, to work again not, has not not nothing to do with covid but less to do with that he says he's never been healthier from a from a flu cold virus point of view I, I have to jump in with that because prior to covid there actually have been studies testing masking to see whether they have an effect on your health and 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 it and you can read them some of them are randomized some of them are not but the good ones are randomized and they don't seem to so, oh, I'm gonna, so in, in, in other words, now, obviously, compliance is always a big, big issue. Power. And, and, and power is another big issue. But, but you know, the other, side of power, other side of power is effect size, right? So if, the, if it, something doesn't show something, it, it, it often shows that it's not big, right? Even if it fails to. It, so 
Um, we have to Adi, it's, that, suggests there, that suggests that we might be drawing the wrong inference from our lack of coals over the right. Last and because and I, I, I want to point out that a lot of the fact that I went two years without getting cold, I also didn't see the numbers of people that I used to see on a regular basis. And when you cut back on so much of activity, you, especially indoors, uh, so, I mean, maybe it's just the fact that we we don't have that many friends, but we don't get that many. We don't but, to but, also, Adi, but also, Adi, but also, Adi, the, the, the test, the test you talked about, the study you talked about was about protecting yourself. Yes. That's the right. more that, you know, whatever the whatever the size of the effect is, the, the stronger effect is going to be protecting others. It has to be that masks are helpful in protecting others when you're sick. So the other effect of the last right. two years is not just less social activity, but the fact that in most situations, for most of that time, when people were social or outside the grocery store or whatever, they had a mask on. So you were protected from other people who happened to have a I'll throw, I'll yeah, throw two other things, two other important points. First of all, I think the stigma of um, saying you're not feeling well is gone now. So it used to be tough it up, go to work, cough or no cough. Come on, think about it, guys, right? Anytime we were genuinely under the weather, the, the uh, you know the incentive or the the cultural um, milieu was to get out there and and churn through. Um, I think if we do that, people will more likely wear a mask now. But I think the other thing is that masks are way way more effective at 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 flu and cold transmission because of a droplet, and that's what they're really good at. Uh, and and so potentially there is a, a mass component. I'm I'm not saying it's not. By the way, I'm just saying that there's lots of ways. To yeah, think I mean mechanistically it can't hurt. No, and... of course not. But you also have to recognize, like, what you, so on the subway, uh, sure. On a plane, sure. Um, but where when you go, where are you going to wear it? Where you're not going to wear it? And where and because yeah. it does hurt in other circumstances. But Adi, you 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 drew the distinction. You said droplet from flu and cold, as opposed to aerosol, which is how we know COVID. The primary driver of COVID is aerosol. Okay, good. Yeah. So, I mean, and I think, you know, I mean, I, I do, as Audi pointed out, I do think some positives coming out of this whole pandemic is normalizing, you know, staying home when you're sick. It's kind of crazy to think back that that didn't used to be the norm, but whatever, um, you know, and also wearing a mask when you're sick. And I mean, that, again, is more about protecting others than it is protecting about yourself. But I do hope that those are customs that I'm going to kind of take forward. As right. far as kind of more general sort of like preemptive kind of things like your friends describing, I mean, I, I do think, you know, mask wearing is going to be more normed in general. One would kind of, though, I hope we're kind of moving towards a situation where at most it's kind of seasonal. Like, I mean, I, I, you know, if you know. I mean, I, besides if your friend is still wearing like a mask in the subway, New York subway in like July, when there's like no COVID and it's July, mm. you know, whereas in the fall when there actually is flu and everything else and COVID, that that would be kind of the time to do it. Yeah, I wasn't going to. It's interesting you brought that up. It's, I want to make a different point, but I'll, I'll answer your point. Um, it's almost like, you know, you, you wear a uniform to work. Like I can imagine it becoming a routinized thing where, you know, why make the choice about having to do it? If you're going to do it, just do it, do it every day. It becomes part of your getting dressed for work. So I could imagine a mental accounting point of view from a cost of thinking point of view. What? So all of a sudden I'm a weatherman. I got to think of the weather and the time of the year and this and that. Just, just, you know, just pay the small price, wear the mask and be done with it. So I'm sure Cade will just correct everything I said, but that was just one point. No, um, I'm going to take that. The, this, this, the, the other point I wanted to make was, you know, I, I was thinking today about COVID and I was thinking, you know, 
why don't we play my favorite game, which when we talk about COVID, which is what is it to Uh-oh. think about this? Here's what I wish I knew about COVID because we've done this every six months. Like I wish I knew if the vaccine worked. I wish I knew. If the, I wish since illness, since I'll, I'll go back to what Adi started with, exposure to COVID seems to be a very large fraction of the population. I would love to know if there are long run effects of COVID, what are they? and how long they last for, and how likely I am to get them. I've, I've shifted, just one last sentence, I've shifted away from worrying about what I'll call, and I, I may get, Adi, I may get the drug wrong, Paxlovid, I may get the drug wrong name wrong, but look, even if I were to get COVID, I think there are pills and other things I could take right now that would also help. So to me, I'm not saying I can't die from COVID, but those aren't the same questions I'm asking myself now. I'm more asking myself about getting it and the long-term effects. Good. Okay. So I want to clarify what the game is that Eric is suggesting is Eric, you're, you're cutting out a little bit. It's not often, but there have been a few long steps. Eric is in a hotel. There's only so much you can do. We're not going to hold it against him. We'd rather have him than not. So we have these cutouts on occasion. Eric is saying, Let's play the following, quote, game. What would you most like to know about COVID going forward? At this stage, as things quiet down, what uncertainty would you resolve if you could, un- if you could re- resolve one? And his first one is better information about long COVID. And he's considered that his greatest risk at this point. Adi. Yeah, because I've been thinking about this. Well, I, I still follow a lot of the people on Twitter who talk a lot about covid um, and it's, I find it, it useful because I can kind of see what still, what are people anxious about? And, and it's shifted away from dying pretty solidly towards the long COVID question. Um, and that's, a good, I guess, a nice thing to see, but I still see the, the, this is a deep concern. I um, have to, I'll guess two comments to you, Eric. First of all, viruses have always caused long-term um, kind of complications of the fatigue, uh, coughing variety. I think we can all think back in our own experiences. I had a 10 month period of fatigue in my life. Um, I've had coughs that just take a long time to go away. And the studies that have looked at people who've had COVID, not hospitalized for COVID, but just COVID and compared them to people who had, were not, didn't have COVID. And this was also usually mostly earlier on. Now we've all had it, right? So um, you could really use serology to, to separate the people. And they really didn't see long-term effects of COVID, um, except for the smell, loss of smell and taste. That stuck out like a sore thumb. You found nobody in the non-COVID side who'd lost their sense of smell for more than six months. So, Adi, and that, that's that's enough of a long-term effect that I that's would right. not avoid COVID. Now, so, all unfortunately, none of this data is post is Omicron and, and and recently. All of this is way earlier before people were, were vaccinated. Omicron seems to have a much lower likelihood of causing. Um, the loss of taste and smell up from 30. Delta seemed to be the peak of that. Yeah, it's down to the peak and that's much lower. So all of this data is old. The hospitalization data seems to be, um, again, that's not randomized. That's where all the long COVID cases were coming from, the ICUs, the hospitalizations. And there were still plenty of people reporting long-term um, concerns who didn't weren't hospitalized, but I think the vector of uh, long COVID is diminishing, and that I think it's going to start to look like the profile of the ordinary uh, virus and flu that have gone around with the lingering flu, lingering fatigues and coughs that we always have always dealt with as part of our problems. Except for the smell, um, 
And that, of course, will, that is a, an open question mark. And I would hate to lose the smell. I talked to someone who's studying to be a sommelier and is terrified of getting COVID for just that reason. So what you just said, Adi, is likely true, but there's lots of things that we've all said that have likely been true. Do we know that people with a more severe case of COVID are more likely to get? Know yeah. that that's true. I think you're cut out again. Did you? I didn't quite, we didn't hear that but I can probably interpolate. Sever- severity of cases related to the chances of long COVID. We see that at the extremes, clearly. The bad cases have the most long-term, but that's not that interesting. I think what you're talking about is the is yeah, sub-hospitalization. Right. Yeah, the sub-hospitalization yeah. ones. And I don't think- Yeah, and I mean, any- specifically, the one thing that we do know kind of is definitely kind of a long-term thing is this loss of taste smell that can happen. That doesn't seem to have- that you know that 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 doesn't have increased frequency with kind of the severity of other symptoms, right? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, I, many it seems many relatively random. Yeah, many people had really only that symptom or that yeah. symptom with mild. It just it just seemed to be quite uh, random, almost of Poisson nature. You know, listen. At this point, if you trust the serology, huge numbers of people have had it. We should be able to do population-wise analyses to see what's what's emerging um, and whether or not there are really longer term by the let the level of the doctor's offices. Um, we should be able to have information before long. All right, Shane, you and I need to answer Eric's question. What do you got? Which question was that? Sorry, I. I the, what do you the, wish you knew? The what oh, do I wish I knew about COVID? I mean, honestly, like as you were kind of talking about the long term of, you know, I've kind of, you know, I, I guess I don't the, the long term, the long COVID situation, what, whether there actually are sort of the symptoms beyond this kind of random loss of taste smell thing is, is certainly one thing. Um, again, I, I would like to sort of like, you know, still have kind of a little bit better, like, you know, my, I keep screaming out for my random sample. I would still like to have a better idea of kind of the actual sort of like longitudinal trends with these different variants in terms of infectiousness and vaccine effectiveness that we could get much better with a random sample than we kind of like currently get with our very biased ways of collecting data um, through the, you know, healthcare system and everything. So I guess I'll put that in, but really kind of, I think, Eric, I think you kind of hit upon uh, the, the, the thing that would be most intrigued me as I'm kind of looking to, as we're looking to the kind of more peaceful coexistence with COVID future as opposed to actually like, you know, um, you know, kind of really kind of, you know, fighting it as strongly. I didn't answer your question, Eric. Um, I have a very clear thing I want to know. Do I take the Moderna? I took Pfizer booster now, or do I wait for a new re-engineered? That question's overrated. That question's overrated. Just take it. Who knows when that next thing's going to come? It's not. It's like you're playing with the margin. Take the protection now. Come on. And who knows whether you can't just get a fifth shot then? Yes. No, you yeah. will. Of course, you're just no, gonna of course you will. You I will. To I agree. Say, I, I'm not convinced. I, I want to know the answer to that. You're telling me I don't need to know the answer to that. That's right. Well, I mean, the, the one wing where it wouldn't be marginal and it actually would be consequential is Audie has talked in the past, and this would be, I guess, another question I'd like. I'd like to know this idea. I mean, you brought up this idea before that we maybe have kind of a somehow like a cap on our total number of times that you know a vaccine would work for COVID. I mean, you at least have brought up some amount of data or evidence that that could be a situation. If that is a reality, then we have to be a little bit more, a little bit less blase about, oh, just get your fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth shot in the future. I don't know if that is the situation. It doesn't seem to be the situation for other viruses like flu. 
to be now to on there was a little bit of news last week we didn't have a chance to talk about it related to what Adi's talking about that Moderna uh, not peer reviewed but they they have a study showing better immune response to their vaccinations that have been tweaked for new variants so but better so they're studying this in a test too obviously they're seeing the immune response to vaccinations that are tailored to the new variants and so that's the reason one might want to wait but they're also not going to be available to the fall so you're burning time right now just get your fourth and get your fifth in the fall when the when the variant tailored so my, my rebuttal to you is i've had three three shots and i've had covid itself relatively recently so that's the argument and the data yeah i feel like having covid that. itself is basically as good as a, a very recent booster because it is actually probably the most recent variant. It's probably better than a booster to an uh, old variant. Well, that, I think there's also just very little cost to swinging by CVS and getting a shot in the arm. Um, so um, it removes a lot of uncertainty. What, 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 okay, so my, my answer is, is, is a, a different flavor because I, I find myself incurious, like embarrassingly incurious about the disease at this point, which is bad probably, but I'm very curious about the world's response to it. And just in terms of managing my life and my anxiety and my issues or whatever they are, like, when are we, when are we going back to normal? How, to what extent are we going to be robust to future upticks in this thing? Or are we going to have policies that shift us back and forth? You know, for example, mask in the classroom, uh, live conferences, um, those kinds of things which affect our lives and have really been buffeted by this thing. And do we smooth out or is it, con- or do we continue to be like buffeted over the next whatever years? Yep. No, no one has an answer for that one, of course, but we're going to, I, I yeah. think it depends on where you are. I mean, that's where, where we're going to see the greatest variance. So we'll like buff it and other places will simply do nothing moving. <laughs> well, I guess there are some benefits to living in, uh, poorly managed states. And I mean, you know, again, this is, this is a weird way to kind of think about it, I think. But, you know, the fact that like at the start of the pandemic, all the kind of things like lockdowns, we don't really have any kind of, it's, it's hard to kind of create a counterfactual for what would have happened if we hadn't locked down because everybody locked down everywhere, basically. Right. Whereas going forward, if we, yeah. if we have a lot of heterogeneity, in kind of policies and stuff like that, that actually represents at least a situation for greater learning. You know, you need kind of variation to actually learn. Well, we've had it. By God, we've had it. I mean, look, I flying, I flew from Austin to San Francisco a few weeks ago and went from the most, one of the most open places for months now to one of the most shut down places for months now. And the comparison is just stark. And this, the, at least the felt economic activity is just like, it's just striking. And so it's I, I can mock my home state for how poorly run it is because it is in many ways. Um, it's not clear they got that one wrong. It's not clear the level of shutdown that's optimal given the cost associated. Obviously, Eric was trying to jump in. You know, I was just trying to say that you asked about going back to normal. I think again, it, it's Shane has been talking about this for at least two years now. It depends not even just regionally within the U.S. Like for example, I took an Uber last night here in Los Angeles. They still have a mask mandate for being in an Uber. Um, I'm going to spend four days in a classroom listening to stuff. I'm don't know. I, but I was thinking more internationally. I would imagine that for those of us that are able to travel internationally for work and other stuff, 
that that's going to have an impact for longer than we might think. I'm thinking it's probably, I'm just making this up. I wouldn't be surprised if we feel the impact for another three to five years on Mm. the global ability to travel, restrictions on travel, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. We get get a little focused uh, on U.S. and then even more regional than that. And you're right, it's a very different scene. Well, I'd like to... I'm kind of curious about what's going on internationally. I know that England um, in uh, two or three months ago got rid of everything um, and had a, had a pretty substantive resurgence, like, like a lot of places. Um, and what's going on? And, and be curious to track them going forward. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, you know, the broader world as well. We have continents where the vaccination rates are just, you know, shockingly low. And so what are the consequences of that? All right, gentlemen, that has been the first quarter here on Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Got the whole crew here today. Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, and this is Cade Massey. You guys can jump in and join us in a way we'd love for you to. You can reach out on, on Twitter. Probably the best way to reach us is Twitter. At WMoneyBall is our handle there, at WMoneyBall. Always up for hearing from you. Whether it's positive or negative, it's a great way to reach out. Give us your comments. You can also hit us up by email. We have a mailbag by email. That address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything that comes in. We get as much of it as possible on the air. And we love to hear from you. So let us hear from you. Guys, open lines, open topics. What in the world of sports has caught your eye lately? Well, I think um, in the NBA, I think we have a possible record setter, really important record setter right here in the great city of Philadelphia. Uh-oh. I think Doc Rivers, there's a good chance we're going to blow a 3 nothing lead. Oh, my gosh. And I think you guys know that uh, Doc Rivers does have a record in the NBA right now. He's blown the most 3-1 leads in the history of the NBA. Um, he's currently 1-7 and seven in his last eight closeout games. Uh, so he's got a long history of blowing leads. Joel Embiid's thumb is hurt, so his offensive effectiveness is down. You know, we've lost two straight. I would put a very high chance that this series goes to seven. I don't know who's going to win it, but I think the Raptors have to be favored now in game six at home. Oh, in home. Yeah, I think they have to be, or at least money line. It's a 50 50 game at best. The Sixers, I think, were favored by a couple of points in game five. Um, I think we may see the, the first time that a team was up three nothing and lose. I think there's a shot of it for sure. It's not certainly, let me say the following. The Sixers right now, in my view, are about a, I would say we're a two-to-one favorite to win. So makes sense. You only have to win one as opposed to two. Yeah, right. But that's, no, but I'm saying it's not 75-25. So, not, Eric, yeah, there, you, you're, you're, you're kind of giving a little momentum discount factor or something like that, or momentum enhancement factor to the Raptors. Exactly. Exactly. That's why I'm saying two-to-one as opposed to, you know, you have to, the only way to lose twice is yeah, the only way to for them to lose is they have to lose twice. 50 50 would make it 75 25. I'm giving it about two thirds, one third. Eric, how, in what way are you putting this on Doc Rivers? What are 
the indications you see or any analyses we have that he's, you know, that he's responsible for this unusual record? Good, good question. So part of what I saw in last night's game, first of all, in a closeout game, which everyone knows was a big game, uh, the Sixers scored 82 points, 8-2 at home. Okay. Second, this is what I thought would happen in a series. That's what happens in many of Doc Rivers' series. Okay. The other team has now played us five straight games. They know our offensive tendencies. They know our defensive tendencies. Good coaches now mix it up. Adapt, yeah. Have alternative strategies. So it's going to be harder for the way the Sixers won the first three games to win another game. Nick Nurse, on the other hand, who I think is an excellent coach, has now, it's almost like you're watching a different team play. Their defensive strategy is different. The way they're attacking is different. And the Sixers have plan A, and so I've seen it, and no plan B. And what the Raptors have realized is that if they double, triple team Embiid, they will live with the Danny Greens, the Matisse Thibels, even right now the James Harden, let them beat us from the outside. Just let it happen. And you know what? Embiid's not putting up 40 points. He's not. So, Eric, He's just, does this they're su- not going this, to let that happen. Does this suggest that an interesting way to look at uh, coaching is their regular season performance versus their postseason performance? Um, I mean, we, we can say the same thing about players. This, this, the same exact analysis can be done with players, right? They figure out tendencies and they come up with ways to stop them. And so the best players have a response to everything that they come up with. Has anybody ever done this with coaches? Have they looked at the postseason performance and had a large enough sample to truly differentiate postseason performance from regular season performance? The problem, of course, is what you're trying to optimize is very different. Like in the regular season, you're trying to get a good placement in the postseason and not have your players burned out. I mean, Doc Rivers, I think, just won his 2,000th, if I have the number right. I mean, I think he's top, certainly top 10. He may even be higher than that in terms of wins all time of course he did win one nba title although a lot of people will say that you know if you gave me paul pierce kevin garnett and ray allen and rajon rondo and only won one title many people would consider that an underperforming coach not an overperforming coach and (laughs) worth noting they went to the finals the next year and barely lost so they could have won two in a row you know that's that's a couple bounces away from two in a row they were uh, that's an absolute that's absolutely fair. I'm too focused on just winning the actual title because they could have had more. And by the way, they were up. I think it was three one on Golden State. This was during the Golden State era. And I think they had an opportunity to win that one to win there, too. Um, so I agree with you, Shane. Maybe I'm, I'm thinking too. I'm being too final winning the finals oriented. with him. No, no. And I mean, I, I think, you know, I mean, I think still that record is kind of telling. And I, I mean, I, I have a little bit of questions about this, like one in seven and closeout games. I'm not sure how they're defining closeout games because he basically went through. He I mean, he won a championship. When, which must have involved oh, no, winning this is multiple. After that. This is after that. Oh, this I see. It's since that time. It's just kind of, it's yeah, just it's with, the, that, it's that, just time okay? with the Clippers. And, is, okay? is that okay and, to say it's just after he was successful? I mean, he no. recently, yeah. I mean, it, it does. You would want, I think. But of to, course, this reminds me, this reminds me of, uh, Adi will remember this, probably knows him. This reminds me of an interesting talk by George Casella 
very famous statistician at Cornell. He says, whenever somebody reports the stat that he's one for seven in his last eight closeout games, you know he was at least two for seven because they would have said one for nine if it was worse. As a matter of fact, there's a whole probability distribution of outcomes I'm not telling you about that you could actually infer something about given I said one for seven. Like even if he lost like one eight, well, if he if he didn't win nine, you might tell me he's two for his last ten instead of one for his last eight. Like you can keep going backwards to what's worse and worse and worse. And given I didn't tell you that, it probably means like he wasn't that horrible in the ones before that eight. Right. I didn't know that was Casella. Is it Casella of Casella and Burger fame? Mm-hmm. It is. Yes. Yep. Yes. But he's got a great a- sports paper about about the informativeness of reporting. Okay. Is it, it, how do you define a closeout game, Eric? Is it is it you win the game? One of the team has over. three. No, you oh, win right. the so game anytime the... one team has three, it's a closeout game. Correct for the team that has three. So that win kind win. of means definitionally in any given series, you can only win once, win a closeout game once, but you but can you lose, lose a it a bunch of, of times. So <laughs> right. already well, right now he's zero yeah. two. He's zero two in this right. series in right. closeout. So it's, it's, it's definitionally so be, good. Yeah. yeah. We need, a, we need a comparison, right? Because Adi's saying basically everybody's going to be below 500 in these things. Just for- no. No, not at all. No. Not, not everybody, of course. But it's likely you are because, or at least about 500, because well, once the you average, lose. The average person will be below 500. What, 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 one further yeah. wrinkle is you have to be a half decent enough coach to even have closeout games. Right. You have to have the lead in the series to even have a closeout game, right? This is true. So it's yeah. like. Doc Rivers is this weird coach. You're kind of arguing he's a bad coach because he's bad. You know, he he's lost so many closeout games. Closeout games. <laughs> yeah, but he must have. You know, I, I mean, a, a, an actual bad close would, coach would never even kind of have well, closeout games. That's a great point. That's a great right. point, Shane. What I'm what I'm pointing out is what I started out with. Yeah, which was uh, it was Kate's point about what evidence do we have? I don't think he adjusts well during a series. And he so, may be too predictable and therefore adjustable too in a series as opposed to other coaches. Exactly. But I like yeah. your statistic about the number of closeout games is informative too. He's had a lot of them, which means he's had leads in series. Speaking of number of games in series, are what should we have expected in the number of games that the first round series go to? I know we there's some way of knowing this historically, but it just seems like – these these first round series have been more competitive than I might have expected. Except for the one series that you guys were like, "Oh, this is going to be the time when there's like a two beats a seven, and then they get swept, and then the Nets get swept." <laughs> but yeah, well, the, like, Nets, I, I, the Nets were just all drama all the time this year. It's, it's no, yeah. it's not surprising. I mean, they're, 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 the, the things things off the court do matter, especially when they rise to the level they did with that. No, team. but I think your point is right, Kate. I think. This there's only one series, as Shane just pointed out, that got was a sweep in the first round. Only one, and it was the one none nobody really expected, to be honest with you. And then there may be a bunch of game sevens. By the way, do not assume that Phoenix, the Suns, and the Pelicans won't go to seven. Do not assume that's the one against the eight. Do mm-hmm. not assume that Memphis, the two against the seven, which is the Timberwolves. Do not assume that series won't go seven. It absolutely. I don't know. Dallas and Utah, Dallas just went up 3-2. That series could go seven. Um, I think there could be a lot of seven. I, I've already told you, I think the Sixers series is going seven. But wait, well, Kate, we I think we may end up with a record with the most number of game sevens in round one. That would not surprise me. Well, forget most number of sevens, just the most number of games. I mean, what, we, had, we didn't own this because we whinge about the NBA being too predictable all the time. 
in playoffs in general, there's nothing more predictable than the first yeah. round where the disparities are the highest. And yet we're not seeing that predictable. Well, we're not seeing it yet. I mean, again, convince, you know, I, I guess yeah, here's better my question to you win guys. Tell, right. tell, you know, give, give me now, update me. Because before the these series started, you're like the best chance for Tanako Chalk is going to be the Nets beating the Celtics. And obviously that was the one that didn't have, we already know didn't happen. What's, what's now the best chance for Tanako Chalk? Is it the Sixers losing? No, they're they're, still up three I mean, they're up, they're up three to two. So you know, the answer would be no. I would say that right now, probably if I, if you ask me to pick one right now. And don't include the four fives. We, we, cause I'm not, two, yeah, I'm not. I'm going to say Minnesota over yeah, Memphis. Minnesota, Memphis. Right. Okay. Um, okay. That's interesting. Okay, Adi, you were trying to jump in. Uh, my recollection is that it's in the past we've had a lot of first round game, series that go to seven, but overwhelmingly they they go to the, <laughs> the better the better now. team. And, and it's just strangely crazy that this happens that that seventh game um, seems to be far away from the the fifty percent mark. Well, so tell me this: this do, do you have a sense of is, I think is there eighty percent? By the way. I think the stat is somewhere around 80% Adi of the home team winning game seven. Yeah. And it's home really does bad. have a big, I mean, the better team is the home team. Yes. So there is an average mean, still, that. So 80% that. is a big number, especially given I mean, that yeah, they, yeah. Were, they yeah. were three and three over the previous six games. Right. So um, I'd expect it, you'd expect it to be closer to 60 or 65. Um, okay. So that's one 80, number. The giant. And that, of course, that's in the first round, Eric, uh, or is that, uh, or is that overall? Actually, I have the number right here, by the way. So, sorry, I was off by 1.5%. I apologize. The number is 78.5% is the time. So there have been 100. Let's just tell you the sample size. There's been 135 game sevens in NBA history, and the home team has won 78.5% of but them. But that's all rounds. So all I round. think in the first all rounds. Round, in the first round, it's way, way higher than that. Well, it can't be way, way higher than 80 It can't be way, way higher. Well, you know, you can think about it as the 20% of the time it goes the other way. That could be now uh, 10%, 5%. That's a lot less. So but I, look at it. But I agree. Good framing. Good framing. Yeah, yeah, it's also it's, the most – it's going to be have twice as many observations as, you know, any other round. So, I mean, the, that average right, is right, mostly right. – is, is probably going to – the, the first would, round is probably going to be kind of close to that average because it is, you know, that's – yeah, but I would argue that, to the average. But Shane, would you once you argue in the finals, that would be the closest to 50-50. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I'm not arguing the point that, like, you know, you would expect it to be a little bit higher in the first round of, of, of all the rounds. I just don't necessarily think that much higher. So we always talk about effect sizes. So now, Eric, um, hold on real quickly before you do that. I got one related question. Do you do y'all think there's mean reversion in these basketball series? Meaning pull, not regression to the mean. I mean, pull to the mean once a team gets up that there's a little bit of a giving up. Or not, they relax. The other team doubles down. And yes. if you're up three, nothing, the chance of winning game four is surprisingly low or something. Of course, Eric likes it because he likes his momentum. This is an anti-momentum story, though, Eric. Is but it's psychologically rich, or so you're. I think it's a psychologically it? rich story, and it has. I, I I don't know what the you would think if a team is up three nothing. Well, it depends, obviously. One is if they're up three nothing and they were the road team, then they're now at home for game four, so that would make it pretty interesting. Um, I would think that a team up three nothing. I'll look it up. I would assume they win game four, maybe sixty percent of the time. Is my guess. 
which is might be less than you would expect for a team that's up three nothing. But I have an interesting I have an interesting follow up question to my game seven. I'd love all your answer. I'd love all your thoughts too. Do you care? The, this is my momentum question, but I'm going to reframe it to try to trick you like it's not. <laughs> Do you care about the path to 3-3? Three, three? <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, yes. oh, yes. why? Why that do you care? Non-stationarity, well, uh, baby. Non-stationarity. Oh, so you think there's non-stationarity in a short series like this? No, why can't you just on. call it momentum? Come on. We got, finally, Eric. No, come on, years. Eric, Eric, Eric. Come on. We've heard from Seth Partnow. He's coming next week to talk to us. And one of the key things we talk about is the prep that a team gets to do right. for playoffs that they don't get to do during the season. And basketball is a lot of strategy that isn't, doesn't get to play out in the long season, but you get to learn from a team when you see them over and over again in, in, a, in a series. And, and seven might sound like nothing to a baseball season. For, for basketball, I think that's a lot. And I think right. learning is definitely a big part. I'll give you right, an so even more parsimonious. If you believe there is information, how many games back do you want information for? See, I'm trying to be like a statistician. We're Wharton Moneyball. Do you want to just know who won the game six? Do you want no, to know? I, know? I want to know how they I want won. The whole I, want to know, I, want yeah, to, yeah. I want to know what they did. I mean, like, what was their strategy? I mean, listen, this is where we got to get some real basketball people here to talk about it. But, but I want to but, know, like, but, 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 Eric, but Eric is right in that if you're going to tell a non-stationarity story, the longer the presumed regime shift has been in place, the more compelling it is. So 3-0, now 3-3, is more diagnostic than, you know, than whatever, coming back 3-1, 3-2. So the longer the streak of the team that has been coming back, the more evidence of some non-stationary. Right. Do you also care about, I mean, Adi, I think you're, I know your answer is yes, but to what degree? Do you care about the score in the game? Much less so. No, so I want to know how, why I was beaten. I mean, you told a beautiful story about Embiid and why he brings so much to a team because he can do so much and he can draw off so many defenders, leaving people three, three point wide. Now, if you saw that get beaten by that two games in a row, three games in a row, and now you decide, okay, we're going to beat this with this strategy. How does that play out? That's not, that's not momentum. That's learning yeah. from your mistakes. Adi, the trouble with you, you're asking for, I'm surprised. A statistician is asking for a story. You have to, I don't trust that. And I, so I want, I want you to operationalize it like Eric does in order to tell me when do you believe it or what do you find? Shit, I don't know about basketball to, to, give you, to tell. Can we define what momentum is too? Like, like, are we talking about kind of the psychological effect of, of, of yes. a streak? Is that what we're trying? Cause yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's being better at the tasks that you d- normally do because you're, you're, you're hot, not because you've mastered a skill or you're, you know, and it's classic basketball. Come on. This is how it for, works. For, for this conversation, we're defining it that way. That's how we're defining And it. everything else we're calling a structural change. But it's like, again, it's at this team level. So it's this uh, sort of psychological yeah, kind yeah. of interactive thing that somehow is happening at the team level. Momentum. Well, but, it doesn't have to be. An individual could be hot. Toronto, An individual can be hot. Games, That's right. Yeah. If Toronto wins game six, whatever definition you think I have, of momentum they got it <laughs> well you see that's the thing that we need to talk about um because to first if you think about the momentum literature with the hot hand literature it originates with psychologists so their view is that your psychology is important to your performance and you and you're and I, I, we have psychologists here you can elaborate but i know that that when you play sports 
when you're hot, you feel like any nothing can get past you. You're, you're, it's, a, it's a frame of mind. And when you're doing badly, you feel like nothing, nothing is working and you, and you well, work so, against so you. To be precise, because it, you, there's risk here of really mischaracterizing it. The psychologists didn't believe that the frame of mind actually facilitated performance. The psychologist, the original psychologist, believed that it was the misperception. That's of- well, that's right. Of course, right. They, they believed it's not real, but but this is what they, but when people describe what it means to feel hot. That's what they that's what they're describing. They don't say, okay, uh, I I, uh, I went into the the batting cage and I adjusted my hands and that that's why I was screwing up and now I'm doing better. That's non-stationary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's worth kind of just hashing this out because, you know, we don't use this. That's not always what we say. Like, that's not always how we use the word momentum to, to partial out only the psychological things. right? No, no, like no, in no. football, when we see all oh, this team is building, got momentum. It's not just sort of psychologically. No, they're, Shane, they're we're using it. We're using a shorthand here to differentiate yeah. uh, the most narrow version, which is what right. we make fun of Eric for believing all the time. And then we're lumping everything else into um, regime shifts or not. But yeah, I, just, but just for this say, conversation, just yeah. for. But I will say, you know, getting momentum is different from sort of getting it right. So, in in in, in strategy oriented games, which is not baseball, um, it, but but football and I think basketball are much more strategy oriented. Like having a strategy, this is how we're going to approach it. You could imagine that a team could have momentum because they have realized that this these strategies weren't working and these are more effective. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that it's not that they're all of a sudden, it's not psychological. It's just it, far from it. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a mastery. I would call that that non-stationarity, but I think we, we tend to lump that in with momentum. Well, yeah, but, that's the thing is I w- right. It, yeah. It doesn't matter. We're just, we needed, a, we needed a, something to agree upon for a way of using shorthand here at the moment, Eric. Just quickly, how much do you upgrade? So the Celtics obviously performed extraordinarily well against the Nets. How much do you upgrade now their chances against likely the defending champion Milwaukee Bucks? You've now seen Phoenix and Memphis maybe aren't as good as we thought. How much do you downgrade their chances against who they play? How much or is it more like it's idiosyncratic to the teams? Well, my shorthand is always to just ask 538 what their NBA forecast says these days. And I've been long on Celtics for a while, simply because they were so positive on the Celtics and they had a particular story. They said it was maybe not they, but the story on the Celtics was they figured out their defense um, and were playing really good defense. And they, you know, they've been sticking really high on the Celtics for a while. So in the absence of any other information, I don't know that it's updating. We liked them a lot before, but, but Sure. I mean, they're well, one Shane, I can be Oprah two now. Remember, I was the one that said I thought the Celtics next series were one of the greats ever. I'm making a, a second prediction now. The Celtics Bucks will be one of the great series in NBA history. That's going to be if if that yeah. comes to pass. The yeah. Bucks are beating the Bulls, or uh, not the Bulls. The Bucks are beating. Uh, I forget who they're playing. The, uh, <laughs> oh the no, it's the Bulls. It's the Bulls. It's the Bulls. The Bucks are playing the Bulls. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're, they're going to win that series tonight. And then I'm telling you right now, that's going to, I can't wait. If Middleton comes back, that's, I can't wait to see the Celtics and the Bucks play each other. Well, they've, they've, uh, that also has the benefit of this great thing that happens in the NBA where teams meet each other in the playoff year after year. 
you know, go back to not just the Lakers Celtics, but like the Celtics Pistons just to get to the finals, mm-hmm. you know, that those like year after year, those battles. Or the Lakers Kings, some of those amazing battles they had back in the day when the Kings were good. By the way, and now all of us. Are you pulling my leg? I don't know. If that's I guess the Sacramento real. Kings. The no, Lakers? No, the 99, yeah. 99, 2000 and 2001. Now, yeah. But now, now, by the way, Shane, that, that tied, the, the tie between the Celtics and the Bucks where the Celtics have home court. All of a sudden, they play a big deal when mm-hmm. they're playing the Bucks. That's all I got to yeah. say. Well, that should be that should be fun. Um, what what other? Just real quickly in the last few seconds, what other series would you most be excited about across the NBA? I want to see what the what the Warriors can do. I think it's a lot of it's so much fun. They've got their their team back, and they're playing uh, they're playing well. Um, I mean, Denver still poses a pretty big hurdle, but any team they play is going to be fun to watch. Um, all right, fellas, that has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now, another open topic segment. It's going to be a short one. Got to make room for a longer interview. In Q4, we're going to talk to Eric Eager, PFF's Eric Eager, about the NFL draft. NFL draft coming up Thursday night. Then, of course, again, Friday and Saturday, big football event. Eager is right on top of it. A fun time talking with him in Q4. All right, guys, we talked baseball, I mean, basketball in the last quarter. A lot on NBA, actually. We've got baseball underway as well. I want to say, We've got hockey. Hockey's regular season is wrapping up. I think yeah. this is the last week. We've got about and three or four games left for most teams. So things are, you know, that we probably but next show we'll be able to kind of do a nice little playoff preview and the, actually look at the different the, matchups. And of and course, uh, Shane, we got my dream. The team made it. I think it was the Panthers made it to 120 points yep. with three games left. That's right. No, that's, it's true. And it, it's sort of like, I think uh, the Avalanche and Panthers, even before the last few games already were kind of in the top, 20 15 20 of all time in terms of essentially winning w- wins in a season so it kind of I, I guess we're sort of seeing at least a little bit at the top end of like you know kind of a relatively historically exceptional kind of time well that if the precedent for that is that they'll fail spectacularly in the playoffs this is the way that's <laughs> sort of the way it happened with tampa bay recently though they turned well, it around the next the, year it feels like it happens with the caps like every other year they set some new points record and, and, and then they flame out Speaking i mean hockey caps, playoffs are deliciously un- predictable so we have that to look forward to i caught um i happened to catch randomly the late late in the caps leafs game the other night and it was i, I turned it on and leafs are down three one i'm always pulling for the leafs they're down three one they scored two goals in the last couple of minutes to tie it they go to overtime of course overtime is a ball these days regular season overtime yeah. is three on three it's like so much fun and then heck they killed a penalty in the last couple of minutes to, to go to the shootout and then the shootout went seven rounds. It was so much fun. I've for, for dialing into a hockey game in the last week of the season with two minutes left, I caught a lot of a lot of fun hockey. Um, we'll do more of that as the playoffs kick in. Um, fellas, baseball, we've got about 10 minutes here. I know you've got 10 minutes worth of things you're you're interested in talking about with baseball. What's going on right now? Angel Hernandez, we got to talk about that guy. Oh, this is an umpire. We're going to talk about an umpire. All right. Well, you know, it's it's the problem with Angel Hernandez is we've known about him forever and he's terrible um, at every base, but especially behind home plate. And uh, when there's big, you know, really game changing decisions, it brings it brings the issue up 
Further, Honestly, I think you should get it. Like we said, I think you should get every single national game from now on because, <laughs> because I really want robo umps. Right. So the, the issue is, is that it's, it's actually most umpires are just a lot better than he is. Okay, and, he's uh, not actually even. No, I mean, if you look at kind of like accuracy, I mean, he's not good, but it's not like it's not like he's an outlier bad. There's a oh, lot no, of no, I, I'm going to I'm going to take that. I mean, listen, most calls are obvious. So you have to look at the ones that are hard and condition on those. And he tends to get them. I mean, he's just got an enormous strike zone. Yeah. Um, and uh, and sometimes a little fickle, but mostly it's just really big. OK, yeah. so let's set the stage a little bit, because this is this is where a lot of people saw Schwarber just lose his shit. Yeah. Ninth inning of a game after everyone put up with a game worth of bad calls. It was right. it was cathartic to watch him. <laughs> lose yeah, it. yeah. Knew, knew he was getting tossed. <laughs> No, and I mean, the great thing about it is it doesn't do anything because there's no transparency and absolutely no accountability. Why is that? Angel Hernandez? Well, I mean, you know. No, there is. I mean, the data's out there. We know how bad he is. I mean, come on. No, 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 no. no. Okay, there's, there's, there's. I I said accountability. You get accountability. accountability. Well, is this is this in a player agreement? I mean, there's got to be some reason to be able to to be able to remove. I think it's a tenure thing, right? Uh, I mean. Is this like public schools or is like, you know, faculty? Like, is this a tenure issue? Is there no way to change his assignment? Basically, but even, at, even listen, you can get fired from being a professor or, for, or for at, a, at a public school for certain causes, right? Um, but it just doesn't seem that incompetence is one of them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, we can just basically take the part of umpiring that, you know, can be done by a machine better out of it, you know? Right, right. I mean, Angel Hernandez will still get paid. He'll still be on the field. Right. He just will have a machine telling him the right call specifically for balls and strikes. He'll still have the potential to screw any will screw up some like, you know, bang, bang kind of plays that we still need humans for or like, you know, plays at the plate, something like that. But I mean, honestly, I, 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 I guess I get triggered now by people who somehow argue that we should have these humans who are clearly not good at it doing this job i like that a machine, I like your point. And, and, I, and i and i should kind of say they're better at it than an average human they're they are sure. you know but they're not as good as a machine can do right well so why are we doing it more outbursts like schwerber's more disaster because people ran the numbers on that on that game and it really was a bad game for hernandez that's gonna quicken the move to robos for sure hey eric asked an interesting question about the major league season one-tenth of the season is over Let's project a few key stats because all these stats have like these hallowed numbers, you know, 50 home runs in a season, 150 RBIs, 25 wins, 225 hits. We've got some numbers already, like league leaders. So the question is like, which of these project best? And that raises the question of like, which of these is more in some sense fundamental, I suppose. So Yeah. So uh, this is why I thought about, I went through the, the leading stats. And so Adi, I'll just, I'll ask you, so let's start with the first one. There's a bunch of guys with six home runs. One-tenth of the season's gone. Ten times six is 60. <laughs> None of them. <laughs> okay. All right. Is anyone getting – how about 50? Uh, God, I would say 30, 30% chance of 50, but I don't think so. Given I think that we're seeing overall home run rates are down, the, the uh, uh, it's hard to tell, but uh, there's a guy at Baseball Prospectus who calculates the – the average balls uh, coefficient of um, not friction, but, but resistance for the, basically for the air resistance on the top of the ball that they, they tend to vary every year. We seem to be in a, an era of 
of uh, lots of drag, uh, drag coaches. Yeah, there, well, there's a, there's an athletic article that just came up in the last couple of days talking about the, it, it's probably a lot of part of it could be due to the humidors because the, the one change yeah. is that they now have humidors in every stadium that's mm-hmm. supposed to kind of standardize a little bit more what the ball kind of balls are like across different ballparks. Let's talk about this for a second because y'all mentioned yeah. the humidors before. So th- this isn't just pregames. This work. Because people go through, they go through a lot of balls in a game. So they're saying all, all the balls live until it goes out onto yeah, the, the ball. The balls are stored, are stored, I think, for a minimum of two weeks in a humidor. Before and that adjusts the, the moisture and the temperature, presumably. Is that the way it works? Yeah, I think it's mostly the moisture. Yeah. Um, but right, right. The temperature yeah. will obviously. But come. the interesting thing is that we could actually see a reversal effect because the humidors right now are making the balls actually more humid than the ambient temperature because we're early in the year in most places it's kind of dry and cold and so the humidors are actually making more humid and kind of suppressing essentially offense by making the balls kind of more you know but later on in the dog days of summer the humidors will actually have the opposite effect they'll dry out the balls and will actually get more you know so at least this article argues that the humidors are currently suppressing offense because we're kind of because of the relative to the ambient temperature that are outside of most stadiums, whereas like in the middle of the summer, they'll actually enhance so do uh, we, offense. Do we see seasonal effects in home runs then? Are you saying? Oh, that- oh no, we, oh, see, yeah. oh, we see seasonal effect because yeah. air resistance is lower in the hot. Yep. I mean, that's just fundamental. The balls travel further. The same ball will travel heat, further. Heat, but but, but Shane's asking for a different effect. Of yeah, this is a different opinion. I, that, I, that I'm going to hold off on. I don't know what the answer is to that. I, and, and I don't really even have it. We can, you got to get Alan Nathan on, I guess, to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Let's, have, let's have him back on. That'd be interesting. Aaron. All right, let's go to the next one, Adi. Uh, 20 RBIs times 10, 200. Should uh, Hack Wilson be shaking in his grave? 190 no, RBIs? No. no, I don't think we – how many years has been since we've, seen, we've even seen 140? let alone 130 uh, RBIs have gone way down because base runners. Yeah. You got to have men on base to have RBIs. Right. Right. And you got to get men on second base. The big way of scoring now is a walk and a Homer. All right. And to get RBIs, you got to have singles who got to drive in runs. Right. And that is happening so far less frequently than it used to RBIs in general, just way down. And, uh, um, or I should say, no, I mean, there, there, there's the one sheet, which I think we all hate, yeah. but I certainly will go, go right there's the RBI cheat where they actually just put a dude on second base and right, extra innings. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so, all right. One. How about Shane? Let's go to the next one to you. Uh, we got 33 strikeouts. Should Nolan Ryan and Sandy Koufax be thinking that there'll be someone joining them in the 300 strikeout club? No way. I, could, <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, yeah, not no the way pitchers are used these yeah, days. Yeah. No one pitches. Look, pitch, unless you I pitch. mean, strikeout rate. Yeah, sure. Let's go with but rates. I mean, like, you but know. rates are going to be easy, right? Because rates are yeah. so up these days. Yeah, but no, no. I mean, uh, unfortunately, starting pitchers or pitchers just don't accumulate enough innings so to kind of challenge for any any counting record in pitching is safe. So I guess, Shane, your comment for, about a pitcher with four wins, 40 wins, Jack Chesbro at 41 shouldn't be overly concerned about his no. record of 41 wins no. in the season. No. No, I mean, didn't honestly, 20, we'll probably, we'll probably see like a, the Cy Young winner will probably have 16 or 17 wins this year. Okay. Biggest records that are danger of being broken are like ERA records, strikeouts per inning records. Yeah. Those are the ones that are that, that are in danger. Um, okay. The You know, the, the lowest batting average for a position player <laughs> across the season. <laughs> so yeah, strikeouts for hitter 
Yeah, that could break broken. That could Joey Gallo, if they put him in the whole season, he'll, bat, oh, he'll strike him half the time. Well, here's one that it's not a record, but it could legitimately happen. This league leader has 24 hits. Shane, do you see anybody getting 200 hits this year? I don't. Uh, just again, because I think offense has kind of been suppressed overall totally but like you know i mean that certainly compared to some of the other ones we're talking about there i mean that versus like strikeouts at least there's no kind of real structural so think about thing. think about in some ways how not less interesting but we're probably not going to have a 50 home run person i agree with adi we're probably not going to have someone maybe even get to 140 rbis we're not going to have somebody with more than low 200s in strikeouts we're probably not going to have a 20 game winner we might not have a 200 hit person to me this takes away from baseball because baseball is about chasing some of these historic milestones so- you're not excited by a team having 13 random people pitch one inning each <laughs> every single come game. on i mean get hyped eric <laughs> but no i agree I, I i totally agree with your point uh so I, thank I, I, goodness I, we have Shohei Itani to actually have exciting stuff to watch in baseball well let's talk at the team level what do you think that most the highest win total projection should be right now 10 10 games in we've got the Dodgers who are who are 12 and 4 the Mets are 13 and 5 not the, Mets. Think that, <laughs> not the Mets not so, the Mets looking I, pretty I, I good think, I mean, no they're good but they're not going to break a, a win record we have to regress them pretty hard so Dodgers right. 100 wins are not Dodgers they're starting oh out yeah 12. Dodgers definitely yeah 100 okay, wins this is the thing Fangraphs has them at 96 Okay. Yeah, why, why are their why are their projections so conservative? That's interesting. That's not. Yeah, I mean, I, I I guess you know probably because they're just doing some. I mean, because historically, you know, you do want to kind of regret. You know, hundred win teams are not you know the norm, but good. I mean, so we our intuition was yeah Dodgers plus twelve and four start, and that yeah. means hundred wins. I'm and going their with model two. Says, there are four teams right now on pace, and I'm going with two. Okay, I'm yeah. going with two as well, and they're both going to be the same division. <laughs> Yankees and Blue Jays. No, Dodgers, Giants. All right. There's a, there's a pick. All right, guys. That has been Q3. We've still got a Q4 to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now fourth quarter, our interview segment these past couple of years. We are delighted today to interview Eric Eager. Eric, longtime friend of the show, frequent guest. Eric is at PFF, Pro Football Focus. He started there 2015. So yeah, maybe as an outsider, contributor, consultant, been, been a data scientist as of 2018, but now big bad VP of research and development, runs the R&D shop at PFF, which is a pretty cool R&D shop. Eric, Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Okay, guys, this is uh, a lot of fun. Uh, I love I love this week. This is like, you know, second to Super Bowl week for me as far as uh, sporting wow. weeks in the year. Wow. So tell us about that. How much of that is betting related versus just activity, fun? Dr- what is it about it? Yeah, I think to me, it's, it's somewhat betting related. It's, you know, I, I think as you know, Kate, like, you know, sides and totals in the NFL are hard to beat and they don't move very much. And there's not a lot of like the, the price discovery phase is relatively quick. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, it's it sort of, it, it's just, it, it's not, it's not as quaint, uh, I think as betting the draft is. And, and that there's that, um, there's also, 
you know, the, the difference between sort of what you would do and what the teams would do, you get to sort of, um, you know, the way I said it the other day is like, you know, free agency, you know, it is it, teams only have so much cap space every year and it sort of oscillates year to year and cat and draft capital has become somewhat that way. Um, but for the most part, you get to sort of stare into these teams souls, right. And like, see what they actually value and, and what the league itself values and how that changes over time. And, you know, it, you get to see, you know, whether progress you thought was that was being made is thwarted or, um, you know, just just kind of like what football is like. Hey, so, hold and, on, hold, so hold on, hold on, Eric. Let me let me stop you for a second. So the, the betting thing is really interesting. We, we, we're going to want to hear from you, like any of your favorite bets. Probably it sounds like price discovery means that things are moving. So it's it's not going to be valuable to our listeners, but let's still hear some of your favorite bets. But I want to push you a little bit on the extent to which we really can see into team souls through these, what, seven picks? They got to take the guys that are in front of them. Things happen that they're not in control of. Um, do you, how, how well do you think you understand a team? How much do you actually learn about a team or a GM from the draft? Well, I think it's, it's an accumulation draft, of – One draft. Yeah, one draft, maybe not that much, but it's accumulation of sort of – you know, you look at Andrew Barry in Cleveland and you look at the number of players he's drafted over the age of like 21 and a half. Right. And it's relatively scant group. And you're like, oh, okay. So he values young players. Um, You look at some teams, you know, like the Indianapolis Colts, who, you know, they don't have a first round pick this year, but over time, they've used a lot of their higher draft picks on players who don't necessarily um, have the, uh, you know, what I would consider to be like the best positional value. Like they take Quentin Nelson, uh, you know, as a, as a guard. Um, you know, it, it pick six, uh, you know, they take Darius Leonard in round two of his draft. Uh, and, you know, they've they've had to pay up for the, the valuable positions like like quarterback, uh, you know, with, with uh, Philip Rivers, then Carson Wentz and then now Matt Ryan. Um, you know, the, the trades like you, you just see Belichick, for example, like, you know, just traded, I think, uh, his one of his fifth round picks for I think it's Houston Texans sixth and seventh round pick just like yesterday. Um, so you get to see sort of like how teams operate. Um, and, and then over time, you sort of can get an idea of, of what they want to do. Now, obviously, there's evolution uh, in the process. But even if you get to like the very first pick of this draft, everybody's talking about a pick that Trent Balky made as the general manager of the San, Fran- San Francisco 49ers in 2011 as the reason why he might take this certain player with the first pick of the 2022 draft. So it, it, to me, I think that's, that's kind of, again, I, you know, maybe I'm overfitting. I also think like I'm privy to some information from, you know, let's say like January till now that doesn't end up, you know, it's sort of the, um, uh, you know, it's sort of the survivorship bias. Like, you know, the, you know, let's say a team like the Bengals, you know, they like a player a lot and he gets taken at 16. Well, they get, they get picked 31. Right. So like, whether or not they actually would would take him at that pick is is immaterial at that point, right? So, you know, it, it's it's more you, you know, and, and then the the day of the draft is kind of nerve wracking, right? And it's it's this culmination of all the information we think we've gathered over the last you know years, really, but but more specifically, the last three months. Um, you know, to me, it's just a really exciting time. Well, even that, I mean, good lord, Eric, you just said enough for us to talk about for the next two hours. It's absurd, is it not? the amount of information, the value, draft value of the information in the last few months versus the last three years of this kid's life. I mean, isn't it 
to some extent ridiculous that people are still learning or think they're learning this late in the process after as many scouts as they've had to look at tape and follow guys and talk to guys. It feels like if this thing were in January, I don't think the performance of the draft would suffer at all. In fact, it might improve. Yeah. I, one of the things I really like to do as a hobby is I like to watch old drafts. I, I you know, one of my favorite ones to watch is the 1994 draft. Um, that was the first year that there was a salary cap. Um, and there's this, this funny scene where, you know, the, the 49ers have to trade Bill Romanowski to the Eagles just to get under the cap, just to be able to participate in the draft. Um, 1993 was the first year there was free agency unrestricted. Um, and, and so, you know, you have these teams filling it out, but the very interesting part of those drafts is to your point, Cade, like most of the free agents weren't even signed. Like it was mostly before the, the harder free agency happened. Right. And then, you know, sort of over time, I think that the NFL has shifted free agency before the draft so that veteran players can sort of like plant their flag before these teams could, you know, gain more information about what their team's going to look like and hence apply that to, to veteran players. So it has evolved. And, you know, I think that that evolution has pushed it back further. Um, now, it's a little bit forward more, actually, than it was, let's say, in like 2013, 2014. But it's still like way further back than it really needs to be. Yeah. Um, and and to your point, like we're examining, you know, I call it price discovery, but it's not price discovery the same way that it would be for an NFL game, like where, you know, we're, there's sort of components to what will happen. Like the Jaguars probably know who they're picking with pick one. They, we just had, we, none of us know it yet. Right. So it, it's very much this sort of like weird thing. It's not like an NFL game. The, these things are not necessarily, at least for the first bunch of picks that the uncertainty is more of the, you know, the uncertainty is more of the Schrodinger sense than it is like, uh, you know, an actual uncertainty, like let's say with a, with a football game that has yet to be played. Well, the, 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 but from their, forget us for a second, from their perspective, I feel like in January, they might have three offensive tackles and, you know, they, they, they kind of feel the same to them. Who's to say what the right order is. They're all our top offensive tackles. Um, but then three months later, they're convinced they know the right order. And the truth is they don't because it's impossible to know the right order. And so the right answer was back when they had them in a fuzzy set, as opposed to a, a rank ordering it's, it's kind of, it's kind of what I think happens, but I know other things happen, but that's a lot of what happens between January and April. That is at least unproductive, perhaps counterproductive. Let me ask you another question because you just ran through a bunch of it with your examples of Indianapolis and Cleveland. And in, in terms of looking into the souls of these teams, what are signs of a sharp team? We talk about teams being sharper, sharper. We talk about some teams being kind of above others. What are signs we should be looking for in the draft of what you consider to be a sharp team? Yeah. You know, for me, it's, it's always, you know, some of the questions we get from teams as a part of our B2B side, like I think to myself, I'm like, Oh, I haven't even thought about approaching the draft that way. Um, You know, it's, it's the notion of, you know, and, and you wrote about this, you know, I think 05 is when the preprint came out. You know, it's a very you know seminal piece with, with Richard Thaler was like, you know, looking at not only, you know, the coin flip between player N and player N plus one at a certain position. Right. But it's also the differential in the salary that that, that player is going to get if you pick them. And, you know, it hasn't happened yet, but I've had a couple teams that I think are smart, for example, approach, you know, the, the this notion of like, you know, th- this notion of like, 
how much it, you know, is trading back. Do I need to get a haul for a trade back to make sense? Right. Do I need to, do I need to fleece that other team uh, in order for this to make sense? Because, you know, you have so many teams that are up against the salary cap, for example, and, you know, ultimately, you know, the, all those dollars matter. And, you know, to move back a few positions, you know, this season, given, and I know this question will probably come up, given what many believe is a weak class, like I, I sort of soundly reject that, like that definitive statement. But in, in, in assuming that's true, moving back almost in a flat class would almost be a positive EV move just from a salary savings perspective. Right. Right. Um, and, and I think like to answer your question sort of in the, in the, in the most complete senses, it's a team that can think more than three years into the future it is to me, the sign of a sharp team, um, a team that is saying, okay, we need this position right now and uh, we'll figure it out later. Like is almost never figuring it out later. <laughs> okay. So that's best, best player as opposed to need. You're saying that, that alone reveals quite a bit. Okay. Eric's trying to jump in here. Yeah. So Eric, can you give us a sense about how large a decision tree, if you'd like, do teams tend to have? Like, here's what would be easy for a team to do would be you just have a rank ordered list of quote unquote best to worst and whoever's the top of your board you pick. But if you if you're drafting a position, you could imagine going that direction first. It's the top person, but in this position or Mm -hmm. you can imagine. So how do teams on when you have, I forget if it's 10 minutes in the first round, I think it's now 10 minutes. How do they decide what to do in that 10 minute period? Because obviously if you had an infinite size decision tree or an AI tool, then you could just plug it in and then you'd be done. But what do teams actually do? I, I think, you know, I know a lot of teams have their own simulators. Um, I know at pff.com, if you want to have fun, I think ours is maybe a little bit more, uh, fan base, you know, like fan base space. So I wouldn't necessarily like use the the data from that to, to bet with, for example, because I think fans, you know, have, you know, their fair, the biases and things like that. But I know most, a lot of NFL teams do one of two things and maybe some of them do both. They'll have like a simulator themselves, right? So they built kind of something similar to what PFF has on the website where, you know, you make your picks and then there's some sort of like random distribution that sort of makes picks in between for you based upon needs and based upon, uh, you know, uh, positional value and things like that. And then, um, you know, it's sort of like you can collect data from that. I think other teams more kick it more old school where they'll they'll simulate the process manually. So they'll they'll spend like the last two weeks or three weeks prior to the draft literally going through the first round, let's say, and situation planning, right? So one of their scouts will play, you know, the Jaguars and one of their scouts will play, uh, you know, Cleveland and they'll go through the draft and then it'll get to their pick and they'll, they'll look at how the board looks, right? They'll, they'll literally go through a scenario plan. That's not necessarily efficient, but maybe, maybe it, it hits the edge cases better. Cause like, for example, I know our simulation, like, you know, needs are, matter a lot, but like, there's also an aspect of, differential draft boards. Uh, there was a really interesting quote by Brett Veach, the general manager of the Kansas City Chiefs, in his press conference where he said, look, we have about 16 to 18 players who we think are first-round values. The chance that one of them gets to us at 29 or 30 is slim. No and bullshit, it's one. I, 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 that's what I'm saying. So I think, you know, you got, like, my my flag went up, right? Because I'm thinking to myself, like, has anybody ever – like, this is just like a – a more conditional probabilistic version of the birthday problem, right? Like where 
Yes, the act, the, the very, the, the, your favorite player is probably not getting to you if that's the case. But at least one of those players is getting yeah. to you more than 50% of the time. And not to mention, like, you know, them, them not needing a quarterback and there being quarterbacks on people's boards. But, like, the heterogeneity in boards alone, I think, gives you a pretty good chance of getting a guy, at least one of your 16 to 18 to 29, and probably enough for you to pick both players 29 and 30. Eric, one second, one second. We're going to jump in. I got a thing, but I, but I feel bad because Audie's dying to jump in. Audie. Yeah, I, to me, it's is really an interesting question about decision-making and probability. If you use a simulator, imagine you have a simulator to, and the point of the simulator would be, I don't know what my opponents would do, so I know what I would do, so I will uh, simulate all my opponents, and I can rank the 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 top 100 situations I might get into and that, and I can make my decisions ahead of time. And then everything else will be just go quickly. My question is, if I say how many, how many, how many scenarios do I have to see to get say 95% of the probability? And in other words, and, and if that's, if it's not that many, then I can probably solve this with a simulator. If it's, if, if the top say a hundred scenarios account for only 10% of the probability, then that simulation strategy is, is a, is a clunker. And I'm going to need to think more strategically by position, by when have to have a, a genuine strategy. Um, so what kind of way, how does it actually go? That's a great question. I think, yeah. I think like it, I think a simulator works it in most, I think a simulator is actually going to be, conservative insofar as to the, the question that we're that, that I just brought up, which is how many of the 16 to 18 players that do you have as let's say first round picks, which again, I think is like a fairly, you know, opaque way, like weird way to look at it. But in my opinion, because you don't know the other team's boards, like you're going to, you're going to assume other teams believe the way that you do a lot more than they actually yeah. will. Like there, right, right. there's going to be like, if you're, and again, I'm bringing up Veach because he, li- he he laid out the probabilities in his press conference. But if you, let's say you're Kansas city, like you're, you might say, Oh, this is a player. No one else likes, but us. And, and there might be like three or four players in that set of 16 a, a, but also there's a ton of players that you simply hate. And as like a, a bias from your initial prior, you might not even think has any chance to be in another team's top 18. You might just dismiss that offhand. So in my opinion, if you start, and this is kind of us like Timo Riske, who I know you guys have had on the show is wonderful, was very instrumental in building the engine for our mock draft sim. The, the, I think we're underestimating the likelihood of, you know, your pick at M and you have N players in round one, what's the likelihood to say more than 50% of the time you get X number of players in to, to pick M? I, I think because of the way that we think everybody else is like us. 100%, no question about it. And if they would just do this historically, they would know. And um, so it's a little surprise. I mean, a GM who's been doing it and tracking it for a while or has an analyst who's doing that would know that. Um, Eric's <laughs> question, one of Eric's questions was about essentially position a uh, uh, need versus overall. And so we think of them as having an overall board and by God, um, you know, if a defensive tackle is top of my board, it doesn't matter what my need is. I'm going to take them, but we know that there's some, you know, push and pull between the two. And so it's hard to have a strictly ranked board unless you've put need into the board. And that's, I think what a lot of organizations do, they'll have a big board, but their needs will have colored 
the way they put those those guys up there. But Eric, one one thing that I'm curious your assessment on is the role of position value and the extent to which the analytics community is all about it, right? And it started with like running backs don't matter and it's kind of expanded to other places. But the idea is, look, um, you just, there, there's a lot of considerations. I'm, I, I want to hear you talk about the, the, whether you think it's, it's progressing, where are you seeing this? Do, do you think it, do you think people are, cause we would take this as a sign of sharp, right? You mentioned the, the Colts signing an interior offensive lineman for like six pick or seventh pick a few years ago, Hutchinson. Um, that's the sign of a not a sharp organization because they're not considered position value, at least what the analytics community would consider sharp. Where is this issue in the NFL right now? Yeah, I, you know, Quentin Nelson is a great example. So the 2018 draft, you had Saquon Barkley, who was picked second, and you had Quentin Nelson, who was picked sixth. And now, like, this, the Colts did a sharp thing. They traded pick three, four pick six, and got a, a number of second-round picks, you know, sort of there. And then they take Nelson, who has been a great player. I think the issue is with positional value, and, and Jason Fitzgerald of Over the Cap, uh, you looked at this just this week. I thought it was a very uh, intuitive but also fun way to look at it. One of the things that, like, you know, we were doing on the PFF side that before we got Brad Spielberger and some cap people and we were sort of missing, which is we're just looking at, okay, if you if you dial the lever at certain positions, how does that change the way in which you win? And and so we w- we got a list and it was obviously quarterback, wide receiver, you know, cornerback was one, safety was another, offensive tackle, and of course down the list were linebacker and running back. And so some of that made sense, but then the way in which these players were being paid was yeah. not necessarily reflecting that. And so when you look and, and you know Jason looked at this really smartly, he said, okay, what percentage of the top 20 players at a position are being acquired in free agency? Essentially, not only just looking at the differential. So when Barkley was taken second overall by the Giants, on his rookie contract, he was still like a top, I think it was top five, top 10 paid running back. Whereas like the, the, the famous example I'll talk about was when Joe Burrow was on his rookie deal, he was making $10 million a year, which was the most expensive player on a rookie deal. The next most expensive player who was a quarterback in the NFL who was starting was Teddy Bridgewater, who was making 20 million. So twice <laughs> as much, there was a $10 million gap between the most veteran yeah. player who was the worst one and the best rookie. And like, and again, it's that gap that you end up with. And it's also, and this is where Fitzgerald, I think, really hit the nail on the head. It's, it's also the availability, right? Left tackles don't get to free agency, or at least ones that are good enough to get the biggest deals. Yeah. Uh, defensive ends do a little bit. And so that was kind of interesting because I think a lot of people, like the top two picks of this draft are going to be defensive ends, which are kind of interesting. But then like running backs, almost, you know, a lot of them make it to free agency. A lot of the higher paid ones, linebackers, a lot of the higher ones can make, you know, guards make it to free agency. And so that is added to the sort of thing about, okay, why do you take tackles high? Why do you take quarterbacks high? Why do you take running backs high? And said, well, that's the only access you have to elite talent at the position because mm-hmm. if a player is good enough to hit free agency as a quarterback, they're either A, has to be a, an extraneous circumstance like Tom Brady to Tampa Bay, and only a few teams actually had access to Tom Brady. Um, you know, Phillip Rivers to the Colts, so that was a little bit, you know, interesting. And, and then, like, Kirk Cousins to the Vikings and Jets. That was, like, the, the places where he has. You, you don't even have access to that talent pool in the other place, whereas you have access to guards, you have access to running backs, you have access to linebackers all over the place. And so why would you use the prize draft capital 
where you, you get into the first round of the draft and you can really get both so, the, the Eric, high this end. Is, this is this seems so straight. I mean, it doesn't, it's not straightforward. Let's acknowledge this is really hard. So not only do you have to think not like, it's not just a pick. It's like, okay, if I take this position with this pick, it probably means I'm going to take something different with my second pick. So there's a portfolio within that seven, but it's more than that because you're saying, look, it's all the different ways you acquire talent from the time the season ends to the time it starts. There's a lot of different channels. You've got to consider all of that simultaneously. If you're going to run the optimization, you have to consider all that simultaneously. This is really hard. No one has that model, by the way. That's the right model. No one has it. This is really hard. So let's acknowledge that. At the same time, how many decision makers in the NFL draft do you think are thinking about it that way out of 32? Yeah, I, I think right now a lot of analytics in the NFL is principles, right? And rules of thumb that gets you 5% edge, right? Like, and that's, you know, sort of enough to win in where I know in baseball, for example, um, you know, they do have, you know, these, simu- like they do draft players this way, right? The way that you described Cade. Um, I, I would say, I mean, the truly understand, I would say it's probably a sixth of the league. You know, and and I think everyone else is breaking the rules more frequently than they maybe should for reasons that make make sense in a vacuum. But ultimately, when you accumulate them, it's a lot of breaking of the rules. Okay, okay. Let's go with principles then. Let me ask you one principle. Um, You quoted, you tweeted last week, and I meant to bring on the show last week. We ran out of time, but you just referred to it with Andrew Barry at the Browns. You tweeted last week: draft position plus age in the model every time. Now, I assume that means you're forecasting how this guy is going to perform over his career. And you're saying, look, just tell me where he's drafted and tell me where his, what his age is. And by what, what you mean by that is the younger, the better. So conditional on where he's drafted, the younger guys do better long-term. Is that what you're saying? And can you talk more generally about age and the increased appreciation people have, including NFL teams for the role of age? Well, it wasn't even, it wasn't even with respect to the draft. It was almost, I was looking at the free agency market because Denzel Ward okay. was signed for a five-year, $21 million per year deal to the, or 20 million to the Cleveland Browns. Denzel Ward is 24 years old. Um, he was picked fourth overall by the Cleveland Browns, right? So, you know, JC Jackson, who I think has played comparably to Denzel Ward over the past four years, it was an undrafted free agent um, and was two years older, even though he entered the league at the exact same time. Okay. And so Denzel Ward got about four or four or five million more average per year in his contract than JC Jackson did. And that again, to me, it was because you have this, and we've seen it all over the place, like your draft capital and your age go with you for every single contract. Um, and, And so to me that like that discrepancy was, okay, if I'm going to try to predict what this guy's second contract is going to look like, then I have to have draft position and age in the model every time that, that is, you know, and, and so, and that was what we do at PFF. We have PFF war, we have some other you know factors about positional value, and then we have draft position and age in the model every time. So I guess I kind of have a question about this, more of the drafting itself and kind of another kind of wrinkle in this all is I feel like we're seeing an increasing amount, maybe you can correct if it's always been this way, of like teams kind of basically trading their high-end draft picks instead of if, if they have a positional need, but they have uncertainty about who in the upcoming draft could fill that, uh, you know, the, that's not the only source for elite talent. They can actually dra- trade the draft picks for, you know, essentially already proven elite talent 
at certain positions, you know, acquiring Russell Wilson or Jamal Adams or whoever. Do you, how how much do you I mean, obviously, how much do you think that is actually a viable strategy versus actually just doing a good job of drafting? I mean, we've seen some successes recently about it <laughs> with it, but I mean, it's, it seems to me at least higher risk. But I, I, I don't know, kind of empirically, like how it works out. Yeah, the Rams are always going to screw the models up now because they went all in. They shoved the chips into the middle of the table. And now there's some – I think your first question is the trades, the trading back. I think everybody wants to trade back now. I think the difference between strike and ask, you know, a bid and ask price on a trade, you know, is going to be different depending upon if a team calls you or you're like, I'm trying to call to get out of this pick. I think that that's – that's a hard thing to do. And I think teams don't want like Jimmy Johnson, you know, there, there's that great documentary. He says, look, I love this player. I can't take him here. I need to trade back. And he had information that everybody else had. You don't have that information asymmetry anymore. Like everybody knows they're getting fleeced by the Jimmy Johnson chart when they are getting fleeced by the Jimmy Johnson chart. So that I think of teams want to trade back more. They haven't really done so in a, in a while, but the, the new craze is sort of going now and saying, okay, and, and I think a lot of this has be, been because draft picks after pick 10 or so from pick 10 to 32, ha- they, they, they have not done as well in recent seasons at either, you know, hitting their fifth year option, um, you know, teams exercising that. And so I think a lot of teams are going to respond to this um, by trading those picks for veteran players. The issue is, is to your point, like no one sees the risk inherent in price. Um, you know, it, it's sort of like, you know, I made it when, when they traded for Stafford, I made the joke, you know, this is back when the Chiefs were playing the Bucs in the Super Bowl. I was like, look, I, I, I'd rather have the Chiefs plus 14 and a half minus 5,000 than I'd rather have Chiefs minus three at even money. And it's like, well, those are equivalent bets, right? It's just, it's where you're applying the risk. And I think, you know, teams see you can apply the risk at the, at the place. You can, you can apply the risk at the place of whether or not the player is going to be good versus you can apply the risk to whether or not the player is going to be good enough to j- justify the cost. And, I, and those are two different things. I think a lot of NFL intelligentsia, like they just don't, these, this is not a consideration that a lot of people are making, right? Like you, you have a discussion about like the mid-tier quarterbacks in the NFL, Kirk Cousins, Ryan Tannehill, Derek Carr, and everybody's like, oh, these are great quarterbacks. Problem solved. It's like, well, are they, like, what's their war per dollar actually? Like that's a middle of the pack figure and that's why these teams can never win. And so just like you, you, you paid up for you, you cut down uncertainty in performance, but then you had to increase the uncertainty and all the other bets you're making along the roster. And that's why you're having a difficulty winning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would, I would say you almost want it, the sharp teams aren't going to follow the Rams strategy. There's it's opportunity. It's like, it's, it's perpetuation of bad policy. Mostly. Um, is, is my my bet. My bet is that, look, it paid off for them. That doesn't mean it's a good strategy to follow in general. But I, you have a much more sophisticated analysis of it. Eric. So, Eric, I just have a follow-up question about age. I can imagine three statistical reasons why younger players are potentially, you know, all else equal, are drafted higher. So one could be that um, age is a proxy for a bunch of unobservables, and therefore younger players have those unobservables, older players don't. Second, it could be it's not Eric, mileage. Expl- Eric, explain that in layman's terms, please. So what I mean by that is, so there's a bunch of things about players that you cannot measure and can't know, possibly. And age is correlated with that. So the reason why younger players are going to the NFL 
is because they're ranked more highly. They may have a bunch of other things that someone doesn't know. And therefore, younger players who go to are in the draft. Yeah, conditional on that. Okay. Yeah, conditional on that. They actually have these better unobservables. So that's one possibility. Another could be, no, you stupid. It's actually chronological age. Like it's not mileage on the tires. It's just like at a certain age, it doesn't matter how many downs you've played. That's another possibility. So you'd rather have a person for a longer career. A younger player will have a longer career, all else equal, right? That's another possibility. A third one is, no, younger players have less mileage because they've played massively less college football or other types of football. I could make an argument statistically for all three of those. Which one do you tend towards of those three explanations? I think the first one is probably the most valid um, because football is a game where, you know, especially us in the media, like we, we we're we're not privy to some of the information that, that teams have, but also the teams don't have and covet. You know, so take for example, the, the the you know, let's say a player declares for the draft early. I think of like Matt Leiner, right? In two thousand and four, he decided to go back to USC and take one class and try to win a championship. And he goes, and the next draft he gets drafted like six six or seven picks later. And he's not very good, and it's it's end of one. But I also like to think, okay, if a player's you know, and whether this matters is a good question, but like if, if, if football means enough to a player or success in football means enough to a player that they have to get to the pros immediately to, to, to hit on the talent level that they have, that might be a positive thing. The other thing is, and this guy was drafted by the Raiders. He's no longer on the team. He had legal troubles, but like when a guy's 23 years old and he's playing with a bunch of 21 year olds, and that's the only good season he had in the, in, in college football, mm-hmm. That data matters to me. And we do that on the play level at PFF. Like we say, like, what, what was the age of the player here? So like you can, in a very crude sense, you could say, hey, like a seven yard completion by a 25 year old is actually like a 6.3 yard completion or something like that. Um, but That's great. It, you have you have that kind of thing happening at the play level. So and, and there, you know, those those things all matter. The other thing is, is the second contracts are expensive, too. Right. And, and a lot of teams, uh, you, we can, you can think of the teams. I think you've even consulted for some of these teams, the, the teams that think, OK, let's let's be conditional on getting to the second contract. What gives the second contract, you know, which is expensive and hard to get a surplus value on the second contract? What's the best chance that we have at getting the second contract to matter? Well, maybe if the guy's 24, right, then he has a much better chance of playing out the entire second contract and giving me that surplus value. So it's even sort of a second order effect too. Um, I think those ones are basically the, so the, so that one is actually your second and third point, which is that like your literal chronological age matters. Um, And and so if you're signing that, you know, like a five-year hundred million dollar deal for a corner is a bad deal. You know, I think for the most part, for a better, you know, for a position like that, where there's a ton of volatility and stuff, if the guy is only 24 years old, at least you increase your odds a little bit, I think. So, Eric, we mentioned earlier the idea that this might be a weak draft class and that that I like to think of it on a mathematical question. You know, you get about uh, 2000 plus or so top players every year added to the ranks and you draft about 200 plus of them. So that's a pretty large fraction. You're talking about a pretty large group of people and ran large lumber theory would say that that's got to be pretty even every year, but it can actually be enormously different at the top of that. So the top 10 and certainly the top one 
can deviate enormously. So it's not like mathematically it's impossible. So what are your reflections on this year's top of the draft and the whole of the draft? I would argue the whole of the draft has got to be pretty similar to what you see every year. Um, but the top first round, the top half of the first round, the top two or three, how do those uh, shake out? Hey, let me just say that this matches a question that we had off of Twitter for you. It was from KH Maker D, KH Maker D about leagues sometimes underrating an entire draft. Well, I think this is very like, this is the very reason why you need a model, right? I think because, you know, you really do need to go and have prior predictions for players so that, because everything else to me is just like media narrative driven. Like I've only ever heard one time when a team publicly said that they had more than 32 first round picks on their board, you know? So, and, and, you know, we've all, we're all, we've all, we're all professors at once or our professors, like you, every single professor tells about how, how much better the students were 10 years ago than they are today. So I feel like that's like exactly sort of that dynamic where, you know, oh, back in my day, the, the players were so much better. Now there's only like 16 guys that I would ever spend a first round pick on. So <laughs> I think that that narrative is like extremely tired and silly. Um, but like for me, like if I look at this draft, for example, I look at the quarterback. So the most valuable position, I had four quarterbacks last year who I predicted as rookies to average seven yards per pass attempt or more. I have none in this. I have none that, that average that I predict average more than 6.7 yards per pass attempt. And that's where that's with building in league wide increases, small little league wide increases every single year due to, you know, the way the league works, you know, like it just gets easier to pass every year. So like from that perspective, it is a weak class for quarterbacks. And so if you take one position that normally takes up, like last year was four out of the first 11 picks, you completely eliminate that position possibly, although Malik Willis could go in the top 10, you eliminate that from the conversation, then it is going to be a weaker class from a value standpoint. I agree with Adi though, like from, if I look at all 250 players, I think you're going to, you know, on average, you're going to have, you know, players 150 through 200 might be stronger than they were last year. And so then on average, it sort of, you know, swings in and becomes average over time. But I think that the the majority of this whole, like, oh, this is a weak draft is almost completely narrative driven if you don't have models. So you have to be able to have models and sort of say like, okay, I actually like Aiden Hutchinson just as much as I liked uh, the top edge players last year. Um, I like so-and-so and then sort of you stack it up and say, and give a grade to these players. Um, but I, I think everything else is sort of going to be biased by some of our human, um, you know, reflections on things. Mm-hmm. Terrific. Terrific. Um, Eric, before we let you go, let's talk a little bit about coverage of the draft, what you're going to be doing, whether anybody can follow you that night, Thursday night, and then of course, Friday and Saturday as well. But what do you consider to be the best ways to watch this thing? I remember a few years ago when I discovered the show that Meanie Kimes was doing and realized I'd much rather watch that than any of the major, the major channels. But what do, you, what do you consider to be the right way to consume the draft these days? And what are you offering? Yeah, so Thursday uh, night for the draft, our, our show is going to be myself, Chris Collinsworth, uh, Mike Renner, and uh, Trevor Sikkema as our host. We're, you know, we're going to do a little bit of the betting market. So we're going to sort of like talk about where the markets expected everything, because honestly, analytics is a lot of setting proper expectations. Right. And, 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 you know, I think a company like ours should be able to tell you, like, what were the odds going into the draft that this player was taken here? Um, You know, after that, it's going to be, you know, our projections, it's going to be our unique spin on things. And we're going to have that, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'll be on the Thursday night show. 
Um, what's, the, am, what's the right way to watch that? YouTube, Twitter. Um, so PFF uh, live draft show. Um, but I, I think in general, you know, the, the, the networks just have a lot of incentives that maybe the average viewer doesn't have. Like, I think, you know, when we watch games and I know you and I talked about this, you know, on the phone, it's like, you know, sometimes like sports betters are just not going to want to watch the game the way it's currently televised for long, for that much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, true, you know, all 22, you know, film watcher guys are not going to watch, want to watch it the way it is. And I think over time, what we're going to end up with is we're going to end up with differentiated broadcasts for these, for these events. And I think, you know, as long as the sport continues to get more popular, I feel like the, the pie will be big enough for everybody to be able to enjoy themselves and, and consume it the way uh, they want to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, listen, have fun with that. It sounds like a ball. Thank you for making time with us here in such a busy week and one of your favorite weeks of the year. But enjoy the next few days, Eric. It's been fun to talk to you. Oh, this has been great. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right. Eric Eager, he is VP of Research and Development at PFF. You can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Eric. I believe it's that direction at PFF underscore Eric. And also strong recommendation on the show. They're going to do not just Thursday, but through the through the weekend covering they will they will cover it in more detail and more interesting detail more analytically oriented more betting oriented than the major networks will that has been another wharton moneyball another two hours of sports analytics here on sirius xm thank you guys for listening for the whole crew it was fun to have everybody in here for the whole show shane eric adi this has been Cade for maddie dats the boss man for Dion simpkins the associate boss man we miss you Dion. thank you guys for listening Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Mm-hmm.